the SLU Law Summation, presenting brief looks at legal matters that matter to you by St. Louis University School of Law, located in the heart of downtown St. Louis. This year's annual Health Law Symposium will address the ongoing ethical and legal questions around dying. Beyond the headlines of the right to die legislation, many patients and their families are faced with hardships and ethical dilemmas. I'm Corey Dugas. Today we're joined by Professor Kelly Deneen from our Center of Health Law Studies. Kelly is also a nurse who has an extensive background in healthcare ethics. In this episode, we will explore the policies that can address issues of untimely and premature death, as well as improving the quality of dying. Thank you for joining us, Kelly. Thank you. In 2014, the idea of death with dignity was brought to the forefront of many of our minds when we heard news of Brittany Maynard, a young woman from Oregon who had suffered from terminal brain cancer and chose to end her life. Can you start us off by discussing the legality behind this case and her decision? So Brittany, as you know, uh, chose to move to Oregon from California because she had a terminal diagnosis of brain cancer and wanted to have the option of ending her life um, when she chose to do so through medical aid in dying. Um, It was legal and still is legal in Oregon at the time, was not in California. This would allow her to take a prescribed dose of medicine that would end her life. Um, The reason these issues come up is uh, in part because of the poor communication around the end of life for patients and to some extent uh, feelings of loss of control, which are normal anytime somebody has Mm -hmm. a terminal diagnosis, they would of course have a loss of control. Um, The reasons that these, these laws exist in the first place, which as you know are not without serious controversy, um, probably reflect on the social state of our support in this country for people at the end of their life and the fears that they have about undue pain and suffering, um, loss of identity, um, loss of care, and also uh, it's borne out over time as we've seen why people have chosen to exercise this option in states where it's legal that people are terribly concerned about being a burden for their family and loved ones. So the you mentioned being a burden for family or loved ones and some concerns about other effects of the illness. Is that why you see that most people, or some people, excuse me, with severe illness choose to make these decisions uh, about the end of their life? So that's an interesting question, Corey, and I don't think there's any one answer. Um, those that are opposed to these kinds of um, state laws are concerned for those very reasons that, in fact, people are making this choice not because it's what they want, but because the supports are not there um, and that they fear for the burden, and financial burden as well, as a matter of mm-hmm. fact, on their families. And the counterargument is that we need to put in place supports so that people don't feel like they're forced to make that decision. Um, Historically, too, we know that there have been abuses of people, particularly those with disabilities, based on social concerns, and that's another reason why social concerns are probably one of the more challenged reasons and also reasons that um, give us pause with regard to this legislation. Mm -hmm. So what are some of the ways that 
we can look at the law and see how it can affect these decisions, uh, potentially positively or negatively, um, or just impact change. So just to follow up sort of on this question and the previous question, um, the thing that is good about the laws as they exist in four out of the five states, I think, uh, with medical aid and dying, is there are strict procedural requirements so that both we have some assurance up front that people um, are in a terminal stage of their disease process, that they have thought it through, that the underlying considerations have been thought through, and that there are waiting periods. Um, those procedural requirements also allow us to look back. Um, and so states like Oregon, Washington, now California, um, Vermont now, have tracking so that we can look back and see exactly why did people make this choice? Who were they? What socioeconomic class did they fall in? What was their diagnosis? These sorts of things so that there's a way to really have a, a check in the before this takes place and after the fact so that policies could be um, modified and we can see why people are making those choices. So in that way, that's a good example of a state law that that takes these considerations into play. The criticism of those kind of procedural requirements is that people who have disease processes that don't fall into sort of the typical um, conditions we think about, like terminal cancer. Mm -hmm. So people who have things like ALS, um, other progressive neuromuscular diseases, for example, because of the requirements where the patient themselves has to be fully competent and also because they have to self-administer the drug, Somebody with ALS, for example, might feel compelled to take it early because they don't know when they'll lose the ability to swallow. Um, some, um, somebody with ALS also may not, their doctors may not feel comfortable saying exactly when they have six months left to live. So they may not uh, have the opportunity at all if they wanted to opt for such a thing. And so you see that patients who fall in these categories that aren't as clearly defined doing things like voluntarily stopping eating or drinking, which is um, something that we see that's pretty ubiquitous, actually, and it's just recently been um, sort of talked about in a mm -hmm. more consistent way. Um, and there are various organizations and supports to help people that want to take that option. But, um, you know, there are pros and cons, of course, to that as well. So part of the symposium that's coming up is we're discussing specifically the quality of dying. So you mentioned sort of two different people, types of people that fall into this category, those with terminal illnesses that are a little more obvious or those with illnesses like ALS or perhaps things that are more progressive. So can you speak a little bit about the quality of dying, what that means and what that might mean in both of these scenarios? Right. Um, so one of the big areas that actually doesn't fall within the medical aid in dying so much is just, you know, a reality at the end of life for everybody, um, regardless of their diagnosis, are things like palliative care and hospice. Um, these exist, um, and they are set up to provide support and care and comfort um, to people at the end of their life. Unfortunately, um, hospice in particular um, is set up to take patients who have less than six months to live. However, most people don't even get a referral to hospice until the last mm -hmm. weeks or even days to the, of their life. Um, 
And then this is sort of where the practice piece comes in, that you can make all kinds of laws that would in theory be set up to help people, but unless the culture of medicine and healthcare embraces that sort of approach, it's not going to matter. So um, I hear over and over again from practitioners in these fields how frustrating it is for them that they get referrals so late that ideally they should be part of the uh, care team, you know, from Mm -hmm. the time. So with palliative care physicians, the idea is that they'd be part of the care team from the time at which a person is diagnosed with a life-limiting condition, meaning it's a chronic life-limiting condition, but it, we're not in the six-month window, mm-hmm. right? And the idea that palliative care would come in and say, look, here's all the treatment. You can take all the treatment you want. Let's talk about what matters to your life, what the goals of this care are for you, and what that means for you in your particular situation, right? So is getting to a kid's wedding the most important thing to you, mm-hmm. in which case then maybe we favor uh, you know, more aggressive treatment to get you to that goal, right? Is getting on a vacation, is just being at home the most important thing for you? And so we, we should shift to everything we can do for you at home. Um, and so it's a very holistic way of looking at medicine. Unfortunately, it's a new field. Um, it's drastically understaffed. They are, they are more than, um, I think it's like 8,000 residency spots that are needed that are unfilled. Um, I'm sorry, not residency spots, 8,000 palliative care Mm -hmm. physician needs that are unfilled, sorry. Um, But there are inadequate residency spots. So there there are all kinds of problems. Um, And the other thing is that these kind of specialties are often siloed and seen as sort of the, if I'm a practitioner in another field, once I've exhausted everything I can think of, and I've got nothing else left, then I'll make a referral to palliative care, which is not the way it should work. Yeah. Um, and I think, you know, that's a practice shift we need to work on. So how can that shift happen? Is there something that can happen legally that's going to move towards that? Or is it really just in, in the thinking of physicians and other folks that are involved in this care? I think it's a combination, Corey. Um, yes, the law by itself can't do any of these things. But for example, um, we know that physicians and other healthcare providers do not talk to their patients about the end of life. Even when they have life-limiting conditions, they do not talk to them about what it's going to be like, um, what they can expect, and what they want. Um, So just this last year, the Centers for Medicaid and Medicare Services Um, allowed for the first time for physicians to be able to bill. uh, So they created a billing code for discussing advanced care planning with patients. Um, We'll see what happens. Mm -hmm. But the idea being that that policy change in the law could, in fact, perhaps help encourage or incentivize these discussions, which might, you know, in turn, in small step, Um, encourage physicians to think about it more with all their patients Mm -hmm. and sort of move us in the direction of um, better communication. To switch subjects just a little bit here, you've done a lot of research on people facing chronic pain issues, Mm -hmm. which is a little bit different than what we've been talking about. But can you speak about the issues there and how this can sometimes lead to accidental death or the choice to commit suicide? Right. So um, my research, uh, part of my background in nursing was working with chronic pain population. And um, 
it's been interesting to me to see the developments over time. I, when I was a law student, I worked with Sandra Johnson, who did a lot of great legal work on this issue. Um, and so what I'm concerned about is um, a multitude of things, but so a few things. So we see that over time as people get um, concerned about addiction, they seem to diminish their concern about people in chronic pain. And my research is sort of a push to say, no, let's look at these groups of patients all at the same time because they're not mutually exclusive groups and they're all legitimate patients worthy of respect. But in chronic pain treatment is not just about treatment with pain medication. That is just one tool in a toolbox of a good practitioner and which may or may not be effective, which might be useful short-term. Um, but at any rate, unfortunately, the two issues are conflated um, because you do use opioids at times in the treatment of patients with acute and chronic pain. Um, but here's, here's my primary concern. We have gotten, of course, everybody has heard about the problems with opioid overdoses, mm -hmm. which are concerning. Uh, and most people have heard the statistic from the CDC that opioid overdoses now um, outpace deaths from car accidents, for example. What most people do not know, even though it is there, uh, usually in a tiny little footnote, is that the CDC groups together all sources of overdose, so all suicides, all accidental, all homicides, are all oh. grouped together in that statistic, right? That's a lot to lump together into one number. Right. And that concerns me because those are two or three, I think homicide's a very small number, mm -hmm. think, thankfully. Yes. But to group accidental overdoses and suicides together um, is, is an unfortunate message because the root causes are so different and the solutions have to be tailored to the problems, right? So um, with suicides, you know, we are not there is very little and no sort of no universal advocacy for screening patients for suicidality even though we know from the limited research that exists that the rates of um, thinking about suicide attempting suicide are very high in people with chronic pain which does make sense of course Absolutely. if you imagine not mm -hmm. being understand when a pain will stop for you um, it can it can create those feelings and um, we really need holistic support for people with these conditions. Um, the same is true for people with substance use disorders. They have very high rates of comorbid mental illness and suicidality. And my point is to um, advocate for solutions that focus on the totality of the problems, not just to play what I what I think of sometimes as like a game of whack-a-mole, like, oh, prescriptions yeah. for these are bad, and so we hit the whack-a-mole of that, and then up pops heroin uh, use, yes, right? Yes. And then we're going to hit that whack-a-mole, but we're not thinking about how do we address access and treatment to for substance use disorders, for mental health care, for sort of the holistic treatment that people that are caught up in this need instead of just either criminalizing people who we uh, suspect of substance use disorders or, um, you know, stigmatizing those with certain conditions. Mm -hmm. 
Everything that you've been talking about here has been so interesting today, Kelly. And um, you will hear more from Kelly and her colleagues on this topic on April 1st. You can visit law.slu.edu for more information on the Health Law Symposium. Thank you for joining us so much today, Kelly. Thank you. Thank you for joining us for SLU Law Summations, produced by St. Louis University School of Law.